Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 323 of the App Percussion Podcast. My name is Ben Charles, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carly Vigna. Hey, Ben. How's it going? It's going well. I'm in Corpus Christi with Ksenia right now. I know. Actually, you're you're having a big weekend because you just had that Christopher Dean Memorial Concert, too. How was that? It was wonderful. So, uh, yeah, we had a concert in Denton uh, two days ago, as of the time of this recording, uh, to celebrate the music of Christopher Dean. It was the most packed I've ever seen in the hall. I got to play his marimba quartet, Vespertine Formations. Uh, there were all sorts of his, his works being performed, and there were a couple speakers. His wife and his sister both spoke. So it was a lovely event, um, and it was recorded, and there will be some, I don't know, full recordings or just snippets of it, but some sort of recordings of that event will come out. Um, and unfortunately, we're recording this at sort of an odd time, so uh, you're stuck with just Carly and me today, no other co-hosts. So, um, But if you're listening to this episode on release day, it's going to be released on April 7th. Carly, what happened in history on April 7th? Yeah, April 7th, a couple of birthdays. Um, April 7th, 1915 was Billie Holiday's birthday. And I didn't know that her name, her birth name was actually Eleonora Fagan. She was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, in 1917, uh, jazz percussionist Mongo Santa Maria, who was known for composing the jazz standard Afro Blue, was born in Cuba. Um, in 1938, rock drummer Spencer Dryden of Jefferson Airplane and New Riders of the Purple Sage was born in New York City. Um, but the big thing we're going to talk about today was that in 1805, Beethoven's Third Symphony, the Eroka, was premiered in Vienna. So our listeners probably know that Beethoven's Third Symphony was really monumental at the time, especially for extending both the length of the symphony and the size of the orchestra. Um, and here's a little background on the piece. He originally titled the piece Bonaparte um, because he greatly admired uh, Napoleon at the time. But then when Napoleon declared himself emperor in 1804, Beethoven decided maybe I'm not so into that anymore. Um, so he named the piece Eroka. And it was dedicated at that time to Prince Franz Joseph von Lobkowitz, who was his patron. And um, it was at Lobkowitz's palace that the Eroica was first performed. Um, let's see, the reception was really mixed, like a lot of these kind of groundbreaking pieces. There was a group of Beethoven's close friends who said from the beginning that the symphony is a masterpiece and that if the public didn't like it, that was only because they were not educated enough to be able to appreciate it. Um, but they said at this time it would have a lasting impact on the art form of the symphony. Um, and some other critics did not appreciate the work initially. A lot of people denied the symphony's artistic value and were dismayed. This is a direct quote by the endless duration of this longest and perhaps most difficult of all symphonies, which exhausts even connoisseurs and becomes unbearable for the mere amateur. Um, so of course we know now that the first group was right because it has definitely stood the test of time for two centuries at least so far. Um, so Beethoven was known for really expanding the symphony. Here are a couple of his biggest innovations. Um, in Beethoven three, he had three horns instead of two. Um, it was also the longest symphony and up until that point, it was nearly an hour, is nearly an hour, I should say. Um, Beethoven five was the first, uh, first use of trombones in a symphony. Beethoven nine, we probably all know, is the first to use choir. And of course, um, the percussion, it wasn't the first time percussion was used, but it is still pretty noteworthy and fun to play. So um, in, in our new history segment, fashion inspired by Ben's segment, Bach, Bach or Nacht last week, we have a little quiz game. This week's segment is called Beethoven or Natoven. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in this segment, we'll have a couple, couple of facts um, and it is Ben and our special guest Shannon's job to say whether this is true or not about Beethoven. Um, so here's here's the first one. Beethoven was actually Ludwig von Beethoven III. His grandfather was also a musician in Bonn, Germany, um, and he was the original Ludwig von Beethoven. Beethoven or Beethoven? I'm gonna say Beethoven. I will say Beethoven. That one is true. That was like a, a softball warm up. Um, so here's another one. Here's number two. Uh, he only turned to composing after he hurt his finger using a homemade device intended to prop up his fingers while practicing. 
He was so eager to succeed that he thought this crude instrument would help him get there faster. Instead, he ended up permanently injuring his two fingers on his right hand, immediately ending his ambition as a pianist. I'm going to say Beethoven because I think I remember hearing that's like Schumann, maybe? It was another composer, I think. Exactly. You're it right, was so definitely I... Schumann. Oh my God, look at me. <laughs> I can't stump you guys. Okay, maybe, maybe this next one. Beethoven was the first musician in recorded Western history to receive a salary with no duties other than to compose um, however and whenever he wanted to. I'll say true. Hmm. I'm not sure, but I'll say, I'll say true. That one's true. Wow. Three for three. I gotta, I gotta come up with harder ones next time. Yeah. Okay. Here's the next one. Uh, he had unusual taste in house animals. At different points in his life, he kept a canary, a starling, a dog, and a horse. I have no idea, but it sounds possible, so I'll say true. Um, I'm going to say, I'll say false, Nato. Shannon's right. That was actually Ben Mozart. Mozart had a horse. Oh, you said Ben is right. I got excited. Shannon's right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. Composers are weird, so they have, probably all have horses and pigs and stuff. I think he was too obsessed with his piano to care about a pet. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, I was reading all these facts about Beethoven, and and it turns out he wasn't a very good housekeeper. Like he was yeah, known was for having messy. like food scraps and just everything was a mess. Yeah. I can imagine him taking care of a horse. Right. <laughs> so two more. Um, once Beethoven attempted to break a chair over the head of Prince Lichnowsky, who was one of his closest friends and most loyal patrons. That's got to be true. hundred percent. I would say true. That one is true. Yeah. Apparently he had a temper. Uh -huh. um, okay. One more. One more. This is your chance to tie it up, Ben. Um, Beethoven played the piano in the dark throughout his entire life. He would always put out the candles in the room, and even when playing at an event or a party, he would ask to extinguish the light in the room. It sounds like, it, I think of Beethoven as angry, not weird. That seems like someone else. Yeah, yeah I've, I've, never, I've never heard that, so I would say false. So that one, okay, it is false. Any guess on who, who it actually was? Greek, I don't know. <laughs> mm, Chopin? Chopin, wow. Yeah. What was that, six for six? Wow. Yeah, Greek, <laughs> Greek right. was the one with the frog figurine, right? That was the fact from last Yeah, that was, that was Greek, I think it was the frog <laughs> Well, that was awesome, Carly. Thanks so much for that. Yeah, and I was you. gonna mention, uh, if you're interested, uh, MTT has a great video in his Keeping Score series on Beethoven 3. And I looked, it's on YouTube. It's almost two hours long, um, but wonderful resource. And uh, Beethoven 3 is one of the few symphonies that I've gotten to perform timpani in the orchestra. So Excellent. Yeah. Um, well, our guest today is a notable Beethoven trivia expert. <laughs> <laughs> Unknowingly. As well as the owner of MalletShop.com and the principal timpanist of the St. Louis Symphony. Um, so please welcome to the podcast, Shannon Wood. Great to be here. So great to have you. And I think Carly and I actually uh, first met you sometime around 2012 or so when you stopped by Miami to give a clinic. So it's good That's to right. see you, I guess, about 10 years later. Yes. <laughs> you know, time flies. Yeah. Um, but Shannon, I, I initially wanted to have you on because of this malletshop.com that you run. Mm -hmm. um, I have to say that I have this like this desire to get uh, a Deegan artist special xylophone. And so I go online and I browse and it's it's like a like a teenager hiding magazines that he shouldn't have to have under his bed. I am just like on yeah. mallet shop looking at all these beautiful vintage <laughs> instruments. So Shannon, can you tell us about malletshop.com? Where did the idea come from? How'd you get started? Sure. And what have been some of the challenges? Sure. First, I'll let you know that I have four artist specials in-house right now. Uh, three, <laughs> three, uh, three and a half octaves, that's uh, 262 and one two, 264, which is the four octave version. So. Very nice. Yeah, that. I'm. I'm interested in the wish come true. <laughs> I'm interested in the 264, and I actually right now I have a lead on one that I think I that's the one I'm going to pursue. But I would definitely let you know if that doesn't work out. Nice, nice. 
So, um, so when you're in school, you're spoiled if you're at a university that just has such an abundance of equipment. And so I was in that position at University of Michigan and also Temple. We just, we had this equipment at our disposal and following um, grad school, I was a year in Charleston and then went to New World. And of course, New World Symphony, a fellowship program had tons of equipment. Upon leaving there, I um, went to uh, a per-service job with the Naples Philharmonic and I had no equipment. And um, that was kind of the advent of the internet for me. It was the, the late 90s. Um, that's when people were just kind of getting their desktop and starting to get online, um, AOL. And that's what I did. And I, I found these classifieds online and came across some instruments for sale. And I had no intent of starting a business. My only intent was to get some instruments so I could practice. And so I ended up purchasing a few. I did some of the basic restoration work, sent the bars to Gilberto up at Century. And I did a lot of the kind of refinishing out of my garage down in Florida at the time. And then I posted them for sale and I had like a, a members.aol FTP server was the very first rendition of, of a, a website, if you will, but it was really just a list. And the idea was to sell those items and then use the profit to fund the instruments I wanted to keep. And that, that was my only plan. And it, it, it just kind of uh, turned into what it is by people contacting me and saying, Hey, I, if you come across this, could you let me know? Or I'm looking for this, uh, or I have this. I'll, you know, if you're interested in buying this, and it just kind of blossomed and enveloped into what it is. It was really no intent. It's kind of just one of those ideas that serves a purpose and then turns into something. And that that's the beginning story of Mallet Shop. Pretty simple. Cool. Um, so with all these great products available today from a number of wonderful companies. Why, why might someone be interested in purchasing a vintage instrument? Well, the, the vintage instruments have rosewood that is just incomparable to anything on the market. The, the hunter and rosewood, um, they're thousand-year-old trees that were harvested, and then they were uh, preserved, kiln-dried, uh, cut into bars, and they've Eight, you know, that's a hundred years of age and the bars are, they just sound so amazing. And when you compare that with newer instruments, a lot of the newer rosewood is softer. It's harvested um, at, a, at a younger age and it can splinter and dent a lot easier. Um, I know Ron Samuels with Marimba One has come up with a technique that hardens I think it's compressing the wood so that it's very dense. So that would be the closest wood to something that's comparable. Um, but aside, aside from that rosewood, personally, I, I love like an old car has all the chrome instead of um, vulcanized or, or, or uh, um, formed plastic bumpers and things like that. And when you look at the old Deacon and the Leedy instruments, there's so much nickel plating and chrome that just is so beautiful to me. And I think that's an aspect, just like an old vintage car um, that is beautiful. And these old instruments have that. Um, so I think that's the reason why a lot of people still <laughs> seek these out. You know, we, Mallet Shop sells all over the world. I've got a huge European customer base, um, orchestras and music studios and schools and a lot of professionals. And it's, it's hard to, um, it's hard to find these instruments and there really isn't, there aren't a lot of places that you can find them where they've been preserved. You know, you, you can see on Facebook, there's a lot of uh, trade and swapping going on like that, but preserving the instruments takes a lot of, you know, um, definitive techniques and retuning and uh, replating and just doing it proper so that these instruments can last another hundred years. Yeah, I, it's funny, actually, when I was thinking about this, like the, the car analogy is the exact same thing I came up with. And it's like, 
yeah, like a brand new, you know, Corvette that can go 200 miles per hour or something is cool. But what's also cool is like a 1967 Stingray or something. It's just such exactly. a, such a cool thing to have. Um, and yeah, I remember hearing about like Rosewood for anyone that's not familiar, Rosewood cannot be, um, farmed. It, it has to grow mm -hmm. naturally and, and be harvested. And from what, yeah, what I've heard is that all the, the good rosewood trees are gone. And so when you uh -huh. cut down a rosewood tree now, it's there's rot in the middle and you're basically cutting out the inside of the tree and, and finding bits of usable wood. Uh -huh. um, so, well, one of the most uh, interesting parts of Mallet Shop seems to be the Gigster that you've developed. Uh -huh. So for those that are unfamiliar, could you tell us what this instrument is and how it was developed and maybe some of the interesting use case scenarios you've seen for it? Sure. So Gigster is a, a 2.6 octave vibraphone in a suitcase. And um, the idea of that came about when I came across this Italian instrument in a suitcase called uh, Vibraphonette, which is vibraphone, but miniature version. Um, and it's made, it, it was made by a company called Galanti. They also made like accordions, um, guitars, a number of different instruments. This would have been back in the, the mid 1900s, so kind of mid-century modern. And the design of that instrument is very mid-century modern. Whenever I would get one, um, they would sell very quick. And I, I just fell in love. I'm not a vibraphonist um, by any means. You know, I can you know, doodle on one, but I'm, I'm not a jazz vibist at all. And, but, um, the, I just fell in love with the design. I fell in love with the instrument. And there, there were a lot of problems with the instrument. The bars are not the greatest quality. Um, the range was very narrow. There are two octaves. Um, you can find a two and a half, but uh, they're harder to find, but they're still kind of bulky and heavy. And they just have a handle. Um, there's not a variable speed motor. And, uh, you know, it just wasn't, I, I, I looked at that and thought, wow, it'd be really cool to to redesign this someday. And so I, I remember drawing out sketches and it and kind of looking into what would it take to to produce this. And that kind of R&D is really excruciating. It, I, I actually you know, probably six or seven years plus went by um, before I actually said, OK, I'm going to do it. And when that day did come, um, it was kind of doing what I had done the research early on, but now I was just a little bit more adamant about it. And um, every phone call, every uh, inquiry, different machine shops, different um, material companies um, led to another person. You know, a door would shut, or I'd find out it's just too pricey, and then it led to a different contact. And suddenly, the day, you know, enough enough of the right doors open where I, was, I thought, wow, I, I think I can actually do this and make it somewhat profitable or, or at least get it done and not have it be a crazy expensive instrument. And so um, I had my first prototype done and right before the pandemic. And the idea was to go to PASIC. And so we, we went to PASIC. Uh, premiered the first one. This would have been in 2019, November 2019, and um, had a booth. A, a number of makers came by, looked at it. Uh, uh, Franz from Adams, and he looked at it and said, wow, this is a really clever instrument. Uh, Demaro came over and was really uh, um, positive about it. And said, he, he actually said, this is the best sounding instrument with a K&K system I've heard. Like, how are you making your bars? You know, what did you do? And so I had a really, a lot of good feedback. A lot of uh, people at PASIC and attendees were interested in it. And so um, I didn't know, you know, how is it going to be received? Because it's not a traditional C or F to F3 octave. And um, the story behind that is that it was meant really for smaller uh, indie bands or coffee shop bands or, or bands that or, or even, you know, jazz vibus who didn't necessarily need a three octave, but just wanted a solo range and they would work with the pianist or guitarist who would comp. So they didn't necessarily need to comp while they're soloing. So since um, we've had pretty good sales, 
the, you know, the pandemic and the su supply chain has caused costs to go up. And so we've had to restructure pricing, but we're in the process of seeing if we can bring the cost down by altering the construction of the case and also seeing if we can come up with a three octave because there is a certain percentage of people who will only play a three octave and you know that that's probably been the downside news of it is that it's not necessarily for everybody but it's exciting it was the first time we've manufactured that i've manufactured something and it, it was it's exciting but also like pull your hair out because you know there's it, so many things that you know, like didn't work along the way and we had to redesign and remachine. And I, I learned a lot. Well, I just wanted to say, I remember seeing it at your booth at, it must've been PASIC 2019. Um, and it looks super cool and it sounds good too. And like, I wasn't, I remember like played a couple notes and like, whoa, like it's surprisingly great sounding um, for that portability. Thank you. Yeah, you, I think some of the things that make it sound so good is that the bars are, are very thick they're modeled after an older Deegan W300 or the 300W, I can't remember, but it's, a, it's an older vibe. They're, they're a mirror polished finish. And when you mirror polish, it kind of hardens the aluminum a bit. And we're using aluminum and processing it similar to how Deegan did. Of course, you can't make it exact because some of the foundries just aren't making um, the material the same way. Um, but and also because it sits in a case, that case is kind of like a string instrument or guitar. It's like a resonating chamber and the, the resonators are under there. And so that the air and the sound is getting amplified to a degree by that case. And that sounds terrific. It's got a lot of, lot of volume. And the KNK system, of course, is a add-on accessory that allows you to amplify or to run it through effects and adds much, much more volume. Yeah, it's it's super cool. Congratulations on that. Thanks. And one little thing I'll add to that is that we added a handle just like luggage. So it's a pullout handle and wheels. So unlike the Galanti or uh, the Deegan Electrovibe or the Deegan 147, which are all portable kind of in case vibraphones, this one's electric and acoustic, but it has like a pullout handle wheel so you can move it around like luggage. So you mentioned like there were some surprises and bumps in the road along the way, things you had to change. What were, I guess, maybe what were the, the most interesting surprises or what, what caught you off guard in developing this? Uh, so many things. Um, the different materials, uh, what materials are available, um, the cost in producing some of the parts. Um, for example, the, the case, uh, the case is made uh, with a CNC machine, so there are a lot of layers that go to it, and and they're um, they're puzzled together and glued, and um, having having that done in such an exact way, so that you've got a dampener bar that pulls down evenly, um, and then dampens all the bars, um, lining up the resonators at the right height under the bar, so that you're still getting because the resonator amplifies the bar. And if it's not set quite right, um, that can change the, even the tune, the, the pitch, the frequency, and it can make it sound a little bit off. Um, coming up with the bar dimensions, um, even though we were kind of modeling it after Deegan, we extended the range. And so making sure that that extension range um, was accurate and, uh, um, weight was an issue, exper experimenting with different weights because we wanted ultimately it, it to be a lightweight Geekster instrument. And even, even though the, like the Baltic Birch is still 110 pounds, when you're using the handle and the wheels, it leverages that weight so you don't feel like you're really dealing with 100 pounds, except when you're lifting it up to a car. So there's you know, so many trial and error moments where like things just didn't function right or something didn't line up and you're going back and redesigning it and trying to figure out how to make it better and, and more uh, user-friendly. I was going to say that uh, we've all at some point encountered a tabletop xylophone uh, and they don't yeah. sound very good. <laughs> and uh, I have to confess when I first saw the instrument, I was like, oh yeah, I can, I can already picture what it's going to sound like. It's going to be like yeah. hollow and all. But then when I, when I looked through the pictures, like the, the way that you 
we're able to get resonators in there and it's like an L bend in the resonators and it's all like yeah. within the case. I was like, oh, that's, that's cool. Like clever. So yeah, yeah. that's awesome. It's, yeah. You know, it's, um, it's probably one of the most difficult instruments of the keyboard instruments to start with, you know, a xylophone is pretty simple. Uh, a marimba, even though it's larger and more material there, you don't have all the moving parts. And with a vibraphone, you've got bars, but then you've got a motor, you've got pulsators, um, a dampener bar, and all that stuff is it's challenging to line it up properly. Well, Shannon, uh, speaking of mallet shop stuff, um, there was an NPR April Fool's joke of uh, they were auctioning off a, a set of rare Stradivarius timpani. <laughs> they were expected to fetch eight figures at auction. Oh, yeah. So, I think uh, I saw that. Yeah. I remember so, that. That got me thinking. I was like poking around your your instruments right now. You have uh, a D, uh, Demaro uh, five and a third octave marimba, so it's a yeah. low A below regular low A, um, yeah. which you could use for the Levitan marimba quartet. And there's right. like the Earl Hatch marimba that's like super weird. So, what have been some of the most interesting, unique instruments you've seen come through Mallet Shop? Uh, or you know, D Doug Demaro made these base marimbas there were an octave and a half and they were made of all wood the resonators were wood um kind of like the the chop chopis instruments that have the buzz character those resonators are wood and i had never seen anything like that and i think he only made maybe four two or four and i came across one of those it was very unusual and unique uh, of course when you find um like a set of parsifals and those are it's a glockenspiel and they have resonators or they're in a case i've come across some unusual models um, that you don't see every day and uh, i came across a three octave set of round tops that's c to c in a case and i i probably only found two of those in the past of course some of the old timpani like baroque style timpani um schneller timpani you don't find those that often i, I would say even like a electro vibe even though it's from the 70s you don't see them a lot or the 147 which is a, a pedal vibraphone a deacon vibraphone in a, in a little suitcase that's kind of rare so yeah there's some really cool stuff out there and and it's it's kind of like a part of the fun for Mallet Shop is finding it. It's like an Easter egg hunt. You know, I, 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 I just get so energized when I come across something and you, you find this, you know, treasure that's still in existence. It's been around for a hundred years and I get excited, um, not even from a monetary standpoint, but finding this treasure and then knowing that, you know, hopefully I can get it and preserve it, preserve the legacy of it, get it back on stage. Like that really excites me. Um, the longevity of these instruments and keeping them in the world because they're, they're beautiful instruments. So do you find you're mostly like you're scouring the web looking for instruments to restore and sell or are people, do people come to you with, Hey, I have this, it needs some TLC. Are you interested? It started with me doing a lot of scouring the, the internet. Um, because of course nobody knew about mallet shop in the earlier days and and it's slowly um progressed to a point where i a lot of people contact me now um social media has changed it a bit of both positively and maybe negatively so there's a lot of trading going on between individuals amongst themselves now whereas before um there weren't many places where you could find something or, or not many places where you could even get rid of something. So, so the, the plus is that there's, it's easier to find things if you want to find things for anybody, but also for me um, through, you know, swap shops, uh, classifieds online, uh, reverb.com, eBay. Um, but, but, you know, there's also a lot of, uh, movement between hands and not necessarily going through mallet shops so you know there's a bit of a, a loss of business too but I, th I think the upside is that because it's it's there's so much of all of it it's it's like more than i can handle even as it is right now so 
you know, I, I, we have tons of instruments in inventory right now um, that aren't on the site that are, just have yet to get restored or serviced. And a number of times people contact me and they're saying they're looking for something, just as Benjamin mentioned, he, he, he's looking for an artist special. A lot of times that, you know, someone will contact me and I'll say, well, I, I have this and they'll put a deposit on it and purchase it before it even gets to the site. And that probably happens more often than not. So, um, yeah, if somebody's looking for something that's not on the site, it doesn't mean that we don't have it. Well, I imagine even with everybody now, we're all used to buying things online and yeah, there's, you know, the Facebook groups and all that, that people sell things like there's still a, a lot of power in your name and knowing the quality of work that you do. And it's not, you know, buying something that somebody found in their grandfather's basement or something like that. It's true. And so, you know, I, th I think there's different level of um, audience members or customers some that are, you know, just want to find something they don't need it uh, in top shape. They just want to practice instrument. And so recently uh, I've come up with something that's it's called OK to play. And the idea of that is we get it in top mechanical condition, but forego all the cosmetic or restoration work so that we can keep the price down because restoration is just so expensive. And I know you look at an instrument on the site and it's what, you know, for a four octave xylophone and you're getting up into the five or six thousand range that's a lot of money um but the 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 work involved is just so specific and um the cost of different materials or plating um it's, it's just very costly and so comparatively though if you look at like a, a new four octave tomorrow or um marimba one they're priced at around eight or nine so if you think about it you, you can still get a Lidia or a deegan restored in the sixes it's still less than buying a new four octave custom made that is kind of the quote unquote deegan you know replica instrument so it's still a buy when you look at it that way but i think there's still there's still kind of an an awakening that people are going through when they when they see something priced so high. Um, so, you know, we're trying to offer, you know, the, you know, and a market, you know, for those who just don't want to spend that kind of money or don't aren't able to spend that kind of money, but still would like an older instrument. I was going to ask, like with with pricing, I mean, when you're getting something secondhand, there's no set price in terms of like what were the materials that went into it or something like that and then also like if you got two of the you know let's say two deegan 262 xylophones one in mint condition and one that needed a lot of restoration work like how do you price those because they're going to end up on the website at the same time and one's going to cost three thousand dollars more yeah so so there are a few factor factors that come into play one is what's the condition of the bars because ultimately that's where the value is. Um, if the bars have been tuned before, or if there's been some wear and splinters, and we have to do kind of a resin repair work, that that's all depreciating the value of the instrument overall. So I, I might price an instrument a little bit lower, even though it's been restored, than compared to another. And a viewer may not necessarily know why, but the reason is because the bar the bars on the other set are just premium they're you know they might they may be virgin bars that have never been tuned so there's more wood so after you tune it's still there's more wood on the bar whereas another set may have had two tunings and so they they're just thinner on the edges or or like the splinter repair work um also there are early bars you will see nogged written down and that's deegan spelled backwards those are the like really early bars that that Deegan um, kind of used as a marketing tool to to say that they're like the premium um, uh, aged rosewood, and whether or not that's true, you know that you know, the, the even the later rosewood is still spectacular, but um, I, th I think there is there is a still kind of this. Um, 
you know, idea that the nugget bars are the, you know, just a, a unique, you know, like a, a, a level above, a cut above. Um, and so you, 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 you know, people will pay more for that. So some of, some of the instruments also, the resonators are brass and they're nickel plated, whereas later they were uh, aluminum. And so if you're getting, you know, you might see a model that's priced higher because it has brass resonators versus the aluminum resonators. And then you get into rarity, um, some models that are just unique and rare, or they have a specific um, finish, like maybe maybe a mother of pearl. Like uh, recently, I, I came across a 264 artist special, um, but it was it was I think it's from the 30s because it splits in the middle. It's not a one piece, and it has this mother of pearl finish instead of just a stained wood, and that's unique like you don't see a lot of those and so that that's another factor that would just price that one up a bit yeah hearing you talk about all the <clears throat> restoration work reminds me we were at the christopher dean thing we were all hanging out and someone was talking about getting youtube certified <laughs> sure there's, <laughs> there's been some some learning and you got youtube certified on staining wood or nickel plating something like that yeah <laughs> Well, Shannon, changing gears a, a bit here, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about your career as a timpanist. So mm -hmm. you're the principal timpanist of the St. Louis Symphony. And in thinking back through the podcast episodes, I was thinking about, I know that that Cher has a somewhat storied history. Uh, the former timpanist was Richard Holmes, and he inspired timpanists, including Jonathan Haas and John Tafoya. So uh, what do you think it was about Mr. Holmes's playing that was so special? And how do you feel about carrying that torch? It's it's first of all it's an honor to to you know sit in his chair. Um, the percussion room or the timpani room still has his name on a little plaque above, and I've and I've left that there just because you know I feel like it's his room still. Um, but I I never uh, personally worked with him. Of course, I grew up listening to his recordings. Um, the St. Louis Symphony under Slacken just probably was one of the the most recorded orchestras back then. And um, I think Holmes was um, revered as a really strong musician, a, just a great musical mind. Um, his phrasing, uh, musicianship, his color and his sound. And when I came here, that seemed to be the kind of the legacy, the tone that I heard from people is um, what, what a great musician he was and the, the kindest soul, just a gentle soul. Um, and so, you know, he, he uh, inspired a number of timpanists, like two you just mentioned, and also Dave Herbert. I don't know if you know, he, uh, Dave Herbert worked with him at the conservatory before the conserv conservatory closed down. And then he went to Juilliard to uh, work with Rowan Koloff. But uh, yeah, he, he's just, he was a, a phenomenal player, a great musician. Yeah, and there's so many of those timpani names, Fred Hanger, Cloyd Duff, like mm -hmm. the, the old time timpanists that are Roland Koloff's another one that you just, they're just like legends and they just established they the sound of timpani in the American orchestra. And I remember we had um, Tim Jennison on and he was talking about Vic Firth and watching Vic Firth play. He was like, yeah, like he was using like plastic heads and like his mallets were just sort of mm -hmm. not not bad, but nothing, nothing craft like we have now. And he, he just right. sounded amazing the whole time. So, yeah, yeah, they 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 set a standard. And then like with anything, you start building on that standard, that base and um, making improvements. And I remember hearing at a when I was in Aspen a summer and Chloe Duff came out to do his week class. Cloyd Duff was the tippetist for years at the Cleveland Orchestra and revered. And he he said, you know, you're 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 gonna go on and do great things and do better things. And and that that's true, you know, in, in all industries. You know, you you build on what these these greats established the foundation of and you and you're making improvements with with the quality of mallets, um, instruments. Um, even heads, you know, plastic heads have come a long way since the 60s and 70s. And, and technique too, you know, sound is evolving. And, and if you 
if you are willing to um, evolve with it, you know, even even a, a player who's um, been in the industry for a while, you're you're still kind of developing your sound and making sure you're a contender that you know you evolve with it. Um, well, Shannon, we've had several timpanists on, and I I just like concertos in general, but uh, I'm always curious about timpani concertos because there are a few in the repertoire, and a lot of timpanists kind of don't have an interest in playing them. Um, and it's, I, I get it. They say, you know, I, I just like how timpani sounds in an orchestra, not on top of it. But mm -hmm. I know you've performed uh, Michael Doherty's Raise the Roof, as well as the Bill Craft Second Concerto, which is the one that has the piccolo timpani and a, a cage around the performer. Yeah. So uh, what is it that you think that some timpani, why, why don't a lot of timpanists enjoy playing concerti, and why do you enjoy uh, timpani as a solo instrument? I actually probably share that same sentiment. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily view or hear the timpani as a solo instrument. When when you think of solo instruments like the piano or or a violin, um, but um, the the raise the roof came about because I was in the Grand Rapids Symphony at the time and. I was asked to do it and um, I listened to it. I wasn't familiar with it. I, I really did like the opening, the, the first half. It's kind of, there, there's two halves to that concerto. There's the first half, then there's a cadenza, and then there's the second half. And the first half is way harder. <laughs> yeah, but what I love about it is that it's based on kind of a, a chant, you know, it's kind of, kind of it's reminiscent of this Gregorian chant. And so it's, it's very lyrical. And that's what I love about um, the, you know, if you're going to write for the instrument, try to make it as lyrical as you can. Because what I, what I don't like, and probably what most other timpanists are referring to, is how a lot of the timpani concerti out there are very drummy, you know, no pun intended, but they, it just sounds like you're, you're just playing these rhythms. Um, Tom Toms, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, it's not... That doesn't really interest me. Um, I want to play musical lines. And when you think about some of the great moments in timpani repertoire, whether it's Strauss, Burlesque, or even Stravinsky, um, the, way, the way they write for the timpani are these very short, but like melodic motifs. Um, Beethoven you know, wrote and utilized timpani more like a third trumpet. And so even though it's not as lyrical, um it's it's still fun in a different way because it is it's more rhythmic but it's also like harmonically rhythmic um and i feel like i'm part of the trumpet section um and until beethoven nine you know beethoven nine has a dun 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 and so it is kind of more this melodic motif there where he's branching into that and and so i really love the first half of the of the doherty um the Condense, the cadenza is, is challenging, but also melodic. Um, I don't love the second half that much because it's a little, it gets a little bit more uh, what I refer to as gimmicky, where you're putting a cymbal on the drum and then using maracas and slapstick. And it, it's a little bit more rhythmic. Um, but then at the very end, it does get a little bit more melodic, uh, melodic again. Um, but with the craft, the craft was just all about lines, lyrical lines. And part of that is because you have so many different notes available to you. You've got nine tenor timpani surrounding you. And then down on the floor, you've got six. And you're pedaling a lot too. So you're creating even more line by more notes being available to you. And it never really gets gimmicky at all. It, it's just he's writing, you know, Bill, Bill is writing musical lines and lyrical lines and um, a lot of like 9, 11, 13 chords. So you're getting a lot of that kind of jazz influence. And that's really what appealed to me with that concerto is that yeah, I felt like I was going to, to be able to make some musical lyrical statements. I'm, I'm assuming the thing that did not appeal to you is having to procure all the tenor symphony. <laughs> yeah, so so that that happened right 
um, after we had our second child. And so our, our second Wilhelmina was born in December and I was playing that in April. So I knew, and we already had our firstborn. So I knew it was going to be a tough year. So I, I Dave Herbert is the one who is a person who owns these tenor timpani. Um, San Francisco Symphony commissioned Bill Craft, and then David, um, at the time, uh, he and Trey Wyatt were in, in uh, owned California Percussion. And I think California Percussion bought the sets, or, or at least one of the sets. And Marshall Light was commissioned to make these drums. And when, when the company split and uh, Dave was no longer a part of it, I, I believe he bought both sets. And so he has them both now. And so he'll rent them out. And so I got a, in contact with Dave and I, I told him we were gonna do this and how, how soon in advance can I get these? And um, he kind of briefed me on what he expected it would take to learn and memorize it. And then I doubled that time frame because I knew with a newborn and how, how busy it was going to be um, that I, I needed to like have the drums way in advance. So I, st I had them about a year in advance and I, uh, I set it up in my studio and got used to the setup. And that alone was a, a new challenge because you're moving your body in different ways. Um, you've, you've got drums at different angles and it, it'd be like adding valves to a trumpet or adding strings to a string instrument and suddenly having to, you know, relearn your instrument. And, and I don't stand when I play. And of course, for this, you have to stand. Um, and there's no way you could read the music because the, the space that envelops you is huge and you can't have your eyes glued to small print. So, so it required memorizing. And uh, yeah, so I, I took a full year and just worked on it, you know, as much as I could every day without being an absentee father. And knowing that I, you know, I still had a job to uphold and, you know, mallet shop and, you know, other aspects of my life. So, but it, but it was gratifying and, and I'd, I'd love to do it again one day. I just don't know if that'll happen. Logistically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I when we had Dave Herbert on the podcast, we, we asked him about the same piece and uh, like that piece. I mean, it's, it's, obviously like it's it's his baby and it was like yeah. it was nice to hear him say in so many words he said like if anyone's interested in performing this piece like i i want it to get performed like let me know we'll figure the timpani thing out like he seemed very open to the idea of like other people playing it and using those drums exactly um, yeah yeah and then real quick about raise the roof that the the, I guess the second section that the timpani plays, like I just, my take on it was like, it's like your Jimmy Page up there. It's just rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. That's a fun one. It, yeah. It also kind of mimics Bernstein a little bit, like West Side Story when you get the maracas. So it, yeah, yeah. It's, it, you kind of fall into this pattern and this groove and then you're just, it's, it's a little more orchestral in a sense, which you could say is, is an aspect of the instrument, but yeah. Well, well, I was talking about the this. I guess the second minor section, like after the uh, after the plane chant, where you kind of bum, beep, bum, beep, right. bum, that stuff. Yeah. But yeah, the the maraca mallets. I just remember I was like, all right, I'm not buying extras. I'm gonna drop ninety dollars on one pair, and if they break for the performance, I just don't use them. <laughs> yeah, I ended up using the Frere maraca mallets for that because they had a a lot of um, sound, but also, you know. They were, they were easy and flew in my hands. Yeah. Yeah, those, those, they don't rebound the same way a regular timpani mallet does, which is, uh, which you kind of need in that section. <laughs> yeah. He, he redesigned them and they have a lot more Baraka sound. And I, I like the redesign of them much more than the first version of them. Gotcha. Yeah. I think I use the JG ones. I think John Tafoya has, some as well. John had um, some too. I and I I have those. Yeah, I, I got a pair of his like before anybody was making them, like back when I replaced him in Florida Philharmonic. And those are cool too. They they split on me, um, you know, because they were just kind of what he came up with at the time. 
Well, speaking of the Florida Philharmonic, that brings us to our, our next question, which uh -huh. is that you won a timpani position with the Florida Philharmonic early in your career. Uh, and then I'm assuming not not long after that, this orchestra dissolved under some pretty unfortunate circumstances. Yeah. And we've heard from several musicians, uh, or I have heard from several musicians in that orchestra about how it affected them and their lives. Uh, I heard Keith Aleo talk about it, and Keith had a really sort of beautiful outlook that he had this huge career goal to win an orchestra job, and he did at a very young age. And then when that just fell out from under him, he had to pick up the pieces and figure out what's next. How do I move on from here? So mm -hmm. what sort of life lessons did you learn from that unfortunate experience? Yeah, um, I think my dad was a, a good example to me. Um, my dad was in a really bad car accident in the 80s, and it put him in the hospital for about six months. And seeing how he uh, persevered throughout that and dealt with change and how it affected him physically, but also just carry on and, and follow what he loved, that, that was a big life lesson for me. So when, when Florida Philharmonic folded, it was four years after I won the job, and it was the second time they folded. It was stunning. You know, I, it's, hard to, it's difficult enough to win an orchestral job and then to watch it fall apart in front of you is is difficult because it's just you can't just turn around and audition and, and win a job like the next day you know it's, it's difficult um yeah i was i was talking to someone about this the other day and uh it was like this guy and his wife had moved somewhere or something like that and um it's the the non-musicians like oh well can you just call the symphony and see if they're hiring like do, do they need a tempest like, no that's not yeah, it's not exactly how this works. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's you know you think the they can make room for an extra. Or, yeah, yeah, you know the process. And so uh, I, I had just bought a house too. So there I am moving into my house uh, like a couple months after the orchestra folded, and I and I, I remember just looking around, and I was single at the time, and I was just like, "What am I doing? <laughs> like, what am I doing here? Like, I didn't feel like I really had a purpose there anymore." Shortly after that, I got a call from uh, Nate Rosaro, who was the head of the department at the University of Miami, and um, he had asked if I was interested in joining the faculty, but you know, you're, you're an adjunct lecturer, it's what you are, and teaching the orchestral. And that was because Keith Aleo left and went to Zildjian. And so, you know, it's, it wasn't an aspiration of mine, but it was something that gave me some purpose to stay in Florida. And one positive about Florida is that there are a lot of different orchestras or smaller orchestras, but there's a lot of work there. So if you don't mind, you know, hitting the trails and driving around, you know, there's a lot of work. Um, a lot of pops gigs, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that kind of stuff. Palm Beach Pops, um, there's Naples Philharmonic, um, there was Boca Symphonia, which kind of came out of the ruins of uh, Florida Phil. There was Miami Symphony. Uh, yeah, there, there are a few others that I'm probably missing the names, Southwest Symphony and uh, Florida Symphony. And there are contractors contracting stuff. So there's a lot of work. And, and of course, I had Mallet Shop still. So um, I, I was really busy. And, but I was just always like up and out the door and, you know, just gone all day. And what so so i felt like i had a purpose but i but also felt like i was chasing the dollar and what i mean by that is it was you know, I'm, I'm going to a gig and playing that gig i'm getting my paycheck but i'm not necessarily developing my sound or working on a degree of artistry or with the same group of people day in and day out and so i i really wanted that and i wanted to i still had a love and passion were playing. Keith had already been in the orchestra for years. So I, th I think for him, you know, a, a career change uh, was more interesting to him. And he did that. And, and he loves teaching. He always taught. And he's such a people person. So going to Zildjian in that position was great for him. But I still wanted to play. And so I, I just started practicing again. Um, and taking auditions, and I was I was fortunate that you know eventually I landed a job again, and that was Grand Rapids Symphony, and 
even though it was a smaller orchestra, I was happy to kind of put all the gigging aside and even the, the, the teaching. And I wanted to be on stage with one group developing my sound, um, work, going through repertoire and just kind of having one place to do it. So, you know, I kind of closed, closed the chapter on Florida and moved up to Michigan where I'm originally from but I was on the West Coast instead of the East Coast where I grew up. And it was great. It was great for me. Um, you know, I, th I think with, without that, I may not be where I am right now. And because it you know, just allowed me to keep building on what I wanted to build on. Well, it sounds like um, not too much has really changed in the South Florida landscape since when you were there. I lived down there from 2011 up until last summer, 2021, and after school was doing the freelance. And yeah, there's it's a it's a beautiful thing for building a freelance career because there's a ton mm -hmm. of part-time orchestras and many of them are playing at a very high level, you know, professional mm -hmm. professional level. But yeah, you do feel like you're lacking the consistency of, you know, of playing with the same section all the time because it's mm -hmm. one day you're here, the next day you're here. And, um, mm -hmm. and it's hard, it's hard to develop, you know, like you said, develop your sound and really, um, I think, feel like you have the level of artistry that you want. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll, I'll bring away, we mentioned Keith Aleo, of course, it's hard to talk about the Florida Philharmonic without mentioning him. And yeah. he was one of my teachers in Boston. And every time, you know, I'd come in for a lesson and just be like, like super stressed or like, I got to learn this by this date. How am I going to make it happen? Or I got this audition. And he would always say, every challenge is a gift. And it sounds like in this situation, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I know a lot of the, the musicians who are in the Philharmonic, the ones that stayed um, and they're, you know, the Boca Sinfonia came out of that mm -hmm. orchestra in Miami. There's so many symphony and people just kind of had to pick up the pieces and create some beautiful things after that. Plus people mm -hmm. like yourself who um, went on to, you know, have other successful auditions and, and meaningful work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great way to put it. You know, every, every uh, challenge, what was it? Every challenge is a, a, it's a gift. It. Yeah, it's a gift. It's yeah, you, you, that's how you improve, whether it's self-improvement or, a relationship, you know, it when there's when there's friction in a relationship, it forces you to look at yourself or look at the other person and have some kind of self growth. And all these challenges in life hopefully make us better people, better individuals. And so, yeah, you learn to pers persevere. You 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 also learn that nothing lasts forever, and it kind of makes you appreciate everything you have when you go through something like that. I'm just sitting here kind of giggling because at this concert I played on Saturday, uh, they were having some technical difficulties with the projector and the video beforehand and the, the IT person that was there couldn't figure it out. So finally, Mark Ford went to the Dean who was sitting there watching this all and he said, uh, Dean, Dean Richmond, we need, we need someone to come help solve this. So the Dean gets on the, the phone and he's, Tell someone, uh, we have an opportunity to problem solve in the recital hall right now. <laughs> and afterward, after he hung up, he said, uh, we have an opportunity to have a meeting on Monday to sort this out. <laughs> so al always an opportunity. Good, good outlook it's, on it. It's a great way. Yeah, it's a great way to live. Well, Shannon, anything else that we should uh, mention before we wrap up here? You know what? I was just down in New World coaching and um, there, there were, there were a, a three of the fellows were leaving. It was their last year. And, uh, you know, there was concern, like, what am I, what am I going to do? You know, like, you know, they hadn't land their job yet. And I had a conversation with one of them. And this, this is just for everybody is that, um, and, you know, we're, we're a bit, we're products of a fast food nation. And so we want everything immediately. We want it quick. You see different friends in different industries and careers getting jobs right out of college or maybe not so much recently um but you know every audition you take every job you do whether it's the one you necessarily have dreamt of or not or the one you really want it, they're all stepping stones and it's it's hard it's maybe a little cliche to hear that but it's really true 
and it ha it's been that way for me. And I, I've, I see other players that have, you know, paid their dues and been, been through, you know, battles and trials. And it's, it's been that way for them. You know, some people are lucky and land something really quick, but you know, all, all the work you do is getting you closer and closer to that place you end up. And I think perseverance is key and not to give up and not to be discouraged, but just, you know, keep working towards what you want. And um, sometimes what you want changes and that's okay. And, but just keep working towards something and um, you'll find your way and you'll find your place. Well said. Yeah. Well, Shannon, thanks so much for your generous time today. It's been a blast getting to chat again. I thank you, Carly, and we will see everyone on episode 324.